0: Want access to richer content and exclusive analysis on the business of sport? Sports Pro Plus is used by experts across the industry to make informed decisions, with two membership tiers offering access to original content, exclusive reports, and a suite of business intelligence tools. Become a member today at sportspromedia.com forward slash subscribe and use the code FCPOD10. That's FCPOD10 at checkout for a 10% discount.
1: Football Co. Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in
0: football. Hello and welcome to the Football Co. Business Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Manby, and on this show I'm speaking to Peen Mullenstein, a sports presenter, reporter and commentator working across Sky Sports, BBC, DeZone, CBS and a whole number of other broadcasters. Recently, Peen became the first woman to commentate on a live Premier League game on Sky Sports and took home the One to Watch On Air Award. At this year's Sports Journalism Association Awards. As you might have guessed from her surname, or maybe you already knew, Peen is the daughter of Renee Mullenstein, who's had a long and successful career in football, most notably as first team coach under Sir Alex Ferguson at Man United, during an incredibly successful period for the club. I'm looking forward to asking Peen about whether that context meant a career in football was always an inevitability for her, some of the highlights of her time as a broadcaster to date and the challenges of being a woman in a male-dominated industry. Pien, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, thank you so much for having me.
0: Pien, is it annoying that I mention your dad there? Do you find it frustrating when people bring up his career when talking to you about your own?
1: Not at all. I mean, I actually really like it because I'm super proud of of everything that my dad's done and And he is a big reason of why I love football so much. And our whole family are, uh, you know, are football crazy. We love it. We love the sport. And that is a lot of it down to him. And yeah, I think he's done brilliantly well in his career so far. He still is doing, you know, great things at the moment with Australia's national team. So yeah, I, you know, why, you know, why would I ever be annoyed at that? I think it's a, it's a really nice thing.
0: What was it like growing up having him, you know, moving around, moving clubs, obviously some stints longer than others. Was that a strange existence?
1: It was, actually, because we grew up in Qatar. We lived in Doha. For, I was there for four years, so from when I was a baby to four, so I don't actually remember much of it. But my parents were there for 12 years. So my mum, who I think is an absolute superhero for being able to do this, had three kids under the age of five sort of traveling back and forth from the Netherlands to Qatar whilst my dad was working. Uh, in Qatar at the time. So it was uh, it was quite difficult for her. But then obviously he moved, well, we moved to Manchester in, in 2001. Dad got the job at Manchester United as a youth team coach. So he was a development coach there, started working his way up through the ranks. And and we were pretty settled at Manchester United for, for quite a long time. I mean, he went all the way up to the reserves. He was a reserve team manager. And then he had the opportunity to go and be the manager at um, Brumby in, in Denmark. So we moved to Copenhagen when we were all sort of, this is when I was still at at primary school. So I think I was in my last year at primary school. It was more difficult for my older brother, Joppa, who is a year older than me. He was just sort of getting into the high school stage. He was moving into year seven. And um, yeah, so we all moved to an international school, but we'd only stayed there for six months because dad then decided to go back to Manchester United because the first team coach job came up as a vacancy. So then we all moved back. So that was pretty (laughs) difficult. I did not, I wasn't happy about that decision at all. I remember because I'd made so many great friends in Denmark and we went to an international school. So I met so many people from all around the world. I had friends sort of all around. So it it was a really cool experience for me. I started ice skating as well. So that was my little sport. So I was pretty gutted as a child that we had to leave and go back to England. And it was more difficult because when we were going back, we were going back halfway through a school year. So making friends is more difficult getting to grips with the lesson plans and things like that is more difficult. So I think after that experience, my mum had sort of said, we're now going to stay in Manchester and wherever dad gets the job next, um, he'll just have to go on his own. So bless him. He's had after Manchester United, I mean, he went to Fulham, he went to Russia, he went to India, he went to Israel, Australia now, of course. So he's had to do all that by himself. But um Yeah, I think my mum made the right call there in sort of keeping us our base in Manchester. And as you can hear from the accent now, I'm an honorary mank.
0: (laughs) A proud and honorary mank. Were you around Old Trafford much? Would you go and see him at work? Did you feel like you were sort of familiar and at home with Old Trafford even when growing up?
1: Yeah, because mainly really my younger brother... Or Carrington
0: for that matter.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. So my younger brother Mella was playing football in the academies at Manchester United. So... I remember my mum and I reluctantly had to go and watch Mella train. Sort of pretty much most weeknights that he was at Carrington, so I'd have to take my homework with me, and I'd be sitting in the cafe, and and obviously Dad would have just finished his training or whatever, so they would come up, and you kind of you become that one big family, and it was sort of a thing where a lot of the academy players, even the reserve team players, were sort of just milling around the area so you'd kind of get to know their families quite well and then of course the players were still there so um, you know and then you start getting to know the receptionists or you get to know the people that work behind the scenes um, the people that work on the pitch and everyone is just sort of one big family so that was really nice and then obviously when you go to Old Trafford and you see the people that you see sort of every week on a weeknight and they're there also at Old Trafford it did definitely start feeling more like a family there was a point though where when I was probably about 12, just about starting high school. And I was, I was not into football because none of my friends really wanted to watch it. None of my friends were interested in it. And um, my mum said, come on, we're going to Old Trafford. And this is when dad got this first team manager job. We're going to Old Trafford and, and you will enjoy it because, you know, it's something you'll never have experienced before, 70,000 people. And I remember she took me there for the first time. And yeah, I think I caught the bug pretty much instantly.
0: <laughs> Did you play at all? Obviously, your dad was involved, your brother was playing, still plays professionally now. um, Did you ever get into it or was it just not of interest?
1: No. So I did when I was at high school. We actually had a, a football team, a girls football team, but it was of every sort of age group because there just wasn't enough people that wanted to play, which was such a shame because if it was more accessible for girls back when I was at school, I think I would have carried on playing You know, all the way through my high school years, but we sort of got into it, I think, sort of year seven, year eight. And then by the time it was like year nine, there just wasn't a team anymore. It was interesting, actually, because Millie Turner, who plays for Manchester United Women, we went to the same school together and were really good family friends. And um, she was on the team. And I remember she was probably, and she was obviously the best out of everyone. And, um, yeah, I can just remember thinking like, oh, poor Millie is probably thinking I can't play with these people because they're just not up to my standard. And she was, you know, obviously better than, than the rest of us, because at the time she was already playing academy football. Um, and it's the same goes for my older brother's now girlfriend, Ellie. She was also playing football at the time in academy and, and they were the kind of girls that I wanted to be like. But because there just wasn't that that opportunity really to continue it on, I sort of went into the other things that most of my friends were playing, which were hockey and netball and then athletics. So that sort of took over my life. And then, yeah, football took a little bit of a backseat, unfortunately.
0: Do you ever think what might have been, I mean, it's very topical what you're talking about here and obviously following on from the Lionesses, winning the Euros and Williamson and Wobben Moy's campaign and the changes that the government have put in place. Do you ever sort of think all oh, of, you know, if it was 10 years or 15 years ago if that had happened um, you know the path might have been different
1: yeah absolutely I mean if if there was just more opportunities for girls to play when I was younger I 100% would have carried on playing football because I actually think I would be quite a good football player you know I had I already have the skills a little bit so I thought if we would have been able to keep it up then yeah because I love the sport and I would have loved to play it when I was younger and you know all of the guys that were in my in my school, I went to a, a special sports college. So, you know, sport was a huge thing for us at high school. And, you know, football was a big thing. All of the guys played it. You know, we would all go and watch the guys play on a weekend or in the after school whenever they had games and stuff. And it was the same with rugby and for the girls it was netball and hockey and that was sort of the divide and yeah it's a shame that it was like that and I, I wish it wasn't but I'm you know I'm glad that things are changing now and I'm glad that sort of the younger generation of girls know that it is access- accessible for them and they have an absolute right to play it whether it's in school or outside of school.
0: So the path to being a professional footballer wasn't to be for you was it then a smooth path to being a presenter at what point did you think that's something I want to do?
1: I think I've always known I wanted to do something in sort of TV or broadcasting. I, when I was when I was younger, um, was doing a lot of TV stuff. So was part of an acting school and I had an acting agent and I was doing a couple of bits um, on screen. And acting, I just didn't feel that, I, I didn't feel like I was enjoying it that much, but I knew I enjoyed being part of sort of the broadcasting side of things. And then I was actually very lucky when I was 15, which for me was a really crucial time in my life, when you're picking, do, you know, what GCSEs you're going to take for your A levels when you go into sixth form, and my dad said, "Why don't you come in to to United to work and and have a look at MUTV?" And Helen at the time is still working there now as well. Actually, she's Johnny Evans's wife, and um, she took me sort of under a wing. And it was, I was only allowed to do it because at the time you can't, you have to be 18 to do work experience, whereas I was 15, but because my dad was working there, um, he was sort of my, you know, parental guidance that he was watching me, watching me whilst I was there. And she sort of took me under her wing and and showed me around and I just was like, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to do. You know, I know pretty much everything about football in terms of like Manchester United, I love doing stuff in front of the TV. I love doing stuff behind the scenes. I was just so interested in it. And that really sort of helped guide me throughout those really important years as a, as a teenager going into the, to last stages of school of what do I actually want to do here? And, you know, I was able to pick the right subjects and then I knew I wanted to do broadcast journalism at university. And it sort of went from there where I was, had a very clear sort of step-by-step way of, of where I wanted to be. And, my dad actually sat down with me and he does this in his in his career as well. And he was like, where do you want to be? You know, what is your ideal point of where you want to be in life? And then how are we going to get there? So he would say, right, okay, this is the next step that we're going to make. So you're going to choose your GC- GCSEs that are going to help you get to what A-levels you need to get to. Same thing with the A-levels. What A-levels do you need to get into the correct university? And we sort of worked our way through there, but it was very important for me as well, especially whilst I was at university, because I knew what I wanted to do. And I knew what I wanted to be that I was working whilst I was at university. So I was getting the experiences whilst I was still studying rather than doing it afterwards. And I think that really set me ahead of the rest of of sort of my classmates and, and students as well, because, you know, it is tricky. You don't, you know, so many young people don't know what they want to do. So I think, yeah, I was very lucky that back when I look at it, 15 years old, having that experience really helped guide me.
0: But you're right, it is uncharacteristic. I think most 15-year-olds you know, have no idea what they want to do. Um, most students probably still don't really know what they want to do. So it's it, it's sort of surprisingly, well, admirably specific that you already kind of had that goal and went for it. It sounds like it's been smooth sailing. Is that fair or have there been setbacks along the way?
1: It's, it hasn't been smooth sailing, I suppose. I think because it's been such a quick sort of transition into commentary, It has gone from sort of zero to 100 very quickly for me in in sort of the past year. But I suppose, like I was saying, whilst I was at university, I think that is when I did a lot of the sort of the hard yards that you have to do to get into broadcasting. So within my first year of uni, I'd got a job as a broadcast assistant at uh, BBC Local Radio because luckily for me, my university was was Salford and um, it was at the Media City campus, which is where BBC, ITV, um, you know, Match of the Days film there. So I was sort of surrounded by where I wanted to work. So I was looking out the window whilst I was at university in my lectures. I was looking directly at the BBC or if we looked ahead of us because ITV were, were right on top of us and they had this big glass sort of floor that we could see up to where all the studios were, which is actually very inspirational as a student when you're looking around. You're surrounded by these places of work that you want to be. And yeah, by my first year of of uni I was already working as a broadcast assistant so I'd be doing a lecture I would go into my lecture 9 till 12 and I'd go into work 12 till 8 and just sort of do assistant stuff and I was learning the trade there so I was you know booking passes for reporters I was speaking to press officers. I was going to press conferences I was reporting I was reading out the news I was basically doing pretty much everything I was doing tech I was producing and I think that's a really good place to start, especially with local radio, because you kind of have to be a bit of a you know, a person that can do do it all and learn very quickly. That was sort of the, the start for me, but it was tricky because you have to kind of, you know, as a young person starting off, you kind of have to make your voice heard. And there was a lot of times where I'd be like, you know, I want to do this. Can I go here? And most of the time, you know, the opportunities were there and they were very sort of, you know, supportive of me doing what I wanted to do. But yeah, I think there's definitely... The hard work has to be there to be able to get to where you are today. And I think what, what I was lucky with was that it was sort of the right time for someone like me to come through. I don't think it's been like that for my other female colleagues that have been working in sort of sports commentary, sports broadcasting. You know, take 10 years ago, it was really difficult for them to, you know, even to be a newsreader. It was hard. So I think, yeah, I think for me, I was lucky in the sense that it was the right time but there's definitely been a lot of hard work behind the scenes as well. Do you think there are
0: some female broadcasters who paved the way for you there? It was notable when the Lionesses won the Euros, a lot of them came out and they said, the England former footballers who have paved the way, you know, didn't have the privileges we had. They didn't have access to training facilities, St. George's Park, professional contracts, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of them called out the likes of Alex Scott and Kelly Smith and so on. Did you feel like maybe some female broadcasters had to come before you in order to make it easier for you.
1: Yeah. I think there's definitely been quite a few actually that have sort of knocked knocked down that door and allowed people like me to come through the likes of Vicky Sparks, Robin Cowan, Jackie Oatley, sort of to name a few in terms of, of female commentators. It's been very lucky for me that I've had people like that to look up to and also be able to share my experiences with them because You know, they've been doing it now for 10, 15 years. And, you know, it wasn't easy for them when they were coming through. I remember Jackie being the first um, ever female voice on Match of the Day. And I don't think the audiences were ready for that. And, you know, you need someone to sort of Take that first step, and I think that was a huge thing for Jackie to do. She's a outstanding broadcaster, and I have so much respect for her. And I I thank her that she was sort of the one to to take that first step. And it needs to have someone like that. And then you have the likes of you know Robin, who did the commentary for the BBC for the Women's Euros, and she was outstanding. She always has been, and Vicky as well. Her radio and TV work on the BBC has been brilliant. So I think it was important that I had. People like them to look up to and and to show that this is possible, that there is an opportunity out there, not just for men, but also for women to work on men's football as well as women's football. And then you've got, you know, so many other broadcasters. Kelly Cates is one of them for me who is an outstanding broadcaster. The way that she she sort of handles herself on screen and also on the radio, I think she's brilliant. So I'm so glad that there are so many people. I mean there's such a big list. I could name so many and, and how privileged are we that we do have that opportunity now to talk about all these female broadcasters that have been, you know, rightly so, you know, making making their voices heard in, in a male-dominated industry.
0: There's a big list, but there's only one person who was the first female to call a Premier League match live on Sky Sports, and that's you. You must be very proud of that.
1: Yes. Do you know what? When, when they first told me about it, I thought, I can't think about this too much because already there's a, there's a huge amount of pressure doing a, a live game for Sky. I, I was doing, you know, for the past year this season, you do things called match choice games. So you are doing the commentary live, but they'll play it out at a later time because they're three o'clock kickoffs and they can't be shown in the UK. They are being shown around the rest of the world, though. Um, whereas this is this was, you know, I was, my main sort of thing was I need to make sure I do do the job well before even thinking about the fact that I was the first female. So yeah, I kind of sort of pushed that to the back of my mind, made sure I got I got got done with the game, and, and it sort of went as best as I could possibly, you know, it could have gone considering the stage that I'm at in, in terms of my commentary career and um yeah and then afterwards it was it was kind of a big pinch me moment where I thought for I didn't you know I didn't understand the sort of the weight of it until people were actually talking to me about it going well done you were just the first first ever female and yeah hopefully that just it's one of those things where that's done now and hopefully there's there's plenty more sort of other other women and girls that can come through and, and think now that they've heard someone on Sky Sports not just the BBC it's um I think it was the right thing and at the right time as well.
0: You talked about speaking with your dad, working out long-term plans, putting goals in place and working towards those goals. Do you feel like this was on track, this moment, commentating your first live Premier League game on Sky Sports? Did it come earlier than you expected? Did it come later?
1: Um, No, it definitely came earlier. In all honesty, I really didn't expect to be a commentator when, um, when I was going through it with my dad and we were, you know, we were saying we want to do, well, I want to do it presenting, reporting. That was my, that was my sort of aim in sports broadcasting, but I'd always, and my dad said this to me as well, you have to be so open to opportunities. I knew the area that I wanted to work in. I knew it had, to, I knew it wanted, I wanted to do football broadcasting but what, what opportunities there were for me, I was very open to it. So whether that be producing, presenting, reporting. And I'd started off as a reporter and a presenter. And that is, you know, I was working for Premier League Productions as a reporter. I was doing some stuff with Manchester United for, for their sort of TV programs as a presenter. So I was sort of getting, getting to grips with doing what, you know, I thought the pathway for me was. And then this opportunity came up with commentary. And really being a commentator is it's just a different sort of side of presenting, different side of reporting, different side of journalism. They all sort of interlink together. And um, I was very, very sort of, I don't know, I didn't believe it when someone said to me, why don't you just try and do some commentary? Because I'd done a bit of reporting at football games for local radio, but it's a completely different ballgame when you're doing a full 90 minute commentaries. I remember listening to the radio commentators that I used to have to you know, produce or, or when I was a broadcast assistant and I would I would think it was just an impossible task because I'm, you know, how do you talk for 90 minutes? How do you keep going? (laughs) It's really tricky. So um, I was very, very scared of the opportunity when they sort of first said to me, I think you should try it. We like your voice. And um, I was just very grateful that people gave me the opportunity and gave me, you know, the opportunity to grow as a commentator as well. There's still so much more (laughs) that I have to improve on. You know, I'm not nowhere near the finished product, but I think you know, the fact that this has only been sort of a year in the making, in the running, and, and we're sort of making good sort of improvements each game. And that is the most important part is, you know, more games under your belt, the more you'll learn about yourself and your voice as well. So, yeah, no, I don't know. To answer your question, it was um, it was never sort of in the in the picture until about a year ago. And now um, it's gone very quickly and, and very fast. But again, like I say, I think it is the right time for female voices to, to sort of be heard on, you know, games that you'll see every weekend so yeah and I think it's time that the audience start getting used to it as well
0: (laughs) well you must be doing something right because you won this prestigious award one to watch uh on air award at the sports journalism association awards that must have felt pretty good
1: yeah it was a very nice thing I know the BBC had told me um they'd put me forward for it after my work at the world cup my first world cup at the during the winter so they did mention that they were going to put forward my little commentaries and stuff and i just didn't expect it because actually the the people that i was up against were brilliant and you know a lot of friends of mine that i've worked with for for quite a few years now so yeah, like they say, and I was in esteemed company with them all. So I was very pleased that when they sort of told me, they did tell me a week before the event that I that I'd won it. So it kind of settled in or sunk in by the time I actually got to the awards, um, which is nice because they gave us the awards right at the start of the evening. So I was able to actually enjoy the night after I picked up my award. But yeah, it was um, it's nice to have that confirmation that you're doing the right thing, I suppose, because. Especially, you know, someone like me, I am a bit of a perfectionist and, you know, you worry about things all the time and what someone else might not hear, you'll always hear that didn't quite go so well and you are your your biggest self-critic. So it was, yeah, it was a a big confidence boost and it was a, yeah, very nice of evening and very nice thing to accept.
0: How's your increased public profile affected you? You must be getting recognized more often down the street. People come up and ask for selfies or autographs
1: not quite I mean that very rarely happens I suppose that's the that's the beauty of being a commentator is that you're you're heard not seen so much (laughs) so it's not too bad so I've actually not had it had it that much I mean you know occasionally when you're you sort of are walking around um Old Trafford or something someone will spot you but that might just be because they've seen me on METV but um yeah you know it's very very rare when that ever happens so but I think you know it's not about me and I think that's the main thing with with sports broadcasting and especially commentary is it isn't about me it's about the game and how much can i have an influence on on creating a better experience for the viewer of that game so yeah and i mean i actually it, it gives me a little bit of fear really the my profile growing a little bit more because obviously with that comes more abuse i suppose on social media and um yeah that is one thing i've had to start getting used to and it's it's been quite tricky the fact that it has kind of gone so quickly Um, over the past year and obviously your your followers go up and stuff like that and you know luckily I'm not I don't have like tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of followers that will I'll get messages every day or anything like that but sometimes in a way it hurts more when you get one or two that sort of come directly to you it's a bit of a yeah a dagger into the heart but yeah I think those are the things you kind of have to get used to when you're in a in a you know in a job like this and if you're being broadcast to the public I suppose you can't please everyone all the time.
0: Have you experienced that? Because I feel like you've mentioned a couple of times um, since we've been talking audience reaction. You know, you said it in the context of Jackie Oatley and I think anyone who remembers that remembers it was pretty poisonous at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. Online, social media can be a poisonous place. Have you experienced any of that?
1: Yes, all the time. But I actually now will just not look at my social media for a good few days after I've done a, a commentary because of course, there's going to be things that I could have improved on. You know, of course, there will be things that I I know that didn't quite go as well as I thought they should have gone. And it's the same with, you know, most jobs, the same with being a footballer. You know, you're not every pass is going to be the perfect pass and not every tackle is going to be perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. And with 90 minutes, of course, you're never going to have the perfect commentary. So, but I am, because I'm starting off and I'm surrounded by people in the gantry that have been doing it for 20, 30 years, and they are the comfort voices that people have heard. You know, as soon as I see sort of negativity around me, it does hurt. And, you know, you want to be able to do the best possible job that you can do. And yeah, you know, I've had people that have messaged sort of screenshots of like abusive messages and like collected them all and sent them to me, which was not very nice, but um, in a way it has taught me just in general that, you know, I, you know, I don't understand why anyone thinks it's okay to be so mean to someone that's just trying to do their best. You know, everyone, everyone in this world is just trying to do their best. And I think, it's you know there has to be a little bit of leeway in the sense that you know three live games for sky you know and you've got martin tyler who's done thousands of them you know he's been doing the job for for 30 40 years obviously that's like comparing a five year old's handwriting to a 25 year old's handwriting they're not going to be anywhere near the same so there has to be a little bit of wiggle room in the sense that there is going to be improvement and I need that opportunity. And luckily I've been working with brilliant broadcasters that have allowed me the opportunity to learn and to grow because that's the only way you can do it. You know, you can't really teach commentary. You just have to do a game and then you'll learn every time. So I think that's important. And to, I've sort of had to learn to listen to the people that matter to me, you know, learn to listen to the producers, the directors, my family people that actually you know whose opinions I can actually count on rather than sort of social media and that is hard because you know you obviously want everyone to like you and you want everyone to to agree with what you're doing and yeah i suppose it's just one of those things that you kind of have to learn to grow a little bit of thicker skin i suppose
0: i noticed that on your twitter you only allow people you mention or follow to reply to your tweets is that part of this sort of defense mechanism of building up a a barrier to stop the harmful comments
1: Yeah, because I suppose like everyone's allowed an opinion and I'm so, you know, more than happy for everyone to, to tweet whatever they want to tweet, but it doesn't need to be directed to me. I don't need to see it because it's not helpful. So, um, yeah, I have, I always do that. Just turn my, turn my sort of replies off. Um, just, yeah, basically just to save myself, I suppose, which is, which is a shame. And there are other people that can deal with that a lot better than i can i just can't deal with it and i don't really twitter is probably the least the least thing that i use it's the one that i've got the most followers on but it's the least <laughs> app that i use because it can be a really ruthless place because people can just tweet their opinions so quickly without even thinking about the you know how people feel and you know i look at football players and the amount of abuse that they get and the amount of horrible nasty comments that they get and i i just think everyone you know before they tweet something needs to have a good long look at themselves you know before they start abusing other people because why you know ask yourself why are you doing this what are you getting what are you getting out of this and i understand people are angry i understand people want i don't know you know want a reaction from someone but i think that's the best way for me is i save myself by not looking at it if i don't what i don't know won't hurt me and that's the best way to go about it and if there is really something you know if there's a nice tweet or if someone has said something nice about it then someone will send it to me that loves me and that wants me to see it, I'll see it. But other than that, I'll just stay away.
0: I think there's a consensus that all public figures on social media uh, are liable at some point to receive uh, online hate and abuse. But I think there's also an understanding that it is different if you are black, Asian, minority, ethnic or female, and those the, that abuse can often become racist or misogynistic. In your case, obviously, um, you know it's the latter. Do you talk to other female broadcasters, and is there a sense that things are getting better or worse?
1: I do. I speak to a lot of my female colleagues about it, and and they all have different ways of dealing with what happens to them. And I think the longer you're in the industry, the easier it is to find coping mechanisms. Um, I was speaking to one of my friends, and she very, you know, she she never really looks on you know she'll never search her name but if she does she's just she will react the same to a really positive comment about her as she will about a negative comment none of them will really affect her at all and that's the way she deals with it she's just it's just a comment it's nothing else It's nothing personal that's just the way that they feel and that's how she deals with it so it is interesting to listen to how other people cope with the way that they sort of deal with online comments and things like that and there are so many times where I think to myself oh you know might as well just delete <laughs> delete it or delete social media and but in a way twitter is a big part of my prep you know i go on i i have to use twitter to see you know what is the fans consensus about the game so far you know what what are the fans feeling about the teams um you know there's so much that you can actually take positive out of twitter that i use as research rather than actually you know just involved getting involved in opinions i know there's a lot of you know the one of my other female colleagues will actually just reply to people <laughs> and i don't know how she does that because i'm just like oh gosh i can't get into an argument with anyone because i'm very yeah i don't like confrontation but that's the way she deals with it so yeah i think they 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 a lot of them just say to me to to ignore it and you know you know the people that matter to you and the opinions that matter to you and if there's anything that you have to know people that you know that you trust will tell you so yeah, I think it's a thing that you have to sort of figure out by yourself, but you know that the support is there and and most people that are kind <laughs> just wouldn't say anything nasty, so you kind of have to put yourself in that boat, I suppose.
0: Do you think there's a solution and what is that solution? And by the way, I don't think it's up to people like you or uh, you know or me or any broadcaster out there to um to suggest the solution, but do you think about it at all?
1: I do and and you know, I I think everyone has a right of opinion and and I would never want to take that away from anyone. And, and it's, to me, it's, it's totally fine if you want to be angry about someone, but I think it's a difference when you're, when you're targeting people and you're, and they're getting it directly at them. And, and I think it's, I think, you know, I don't know what the way it is to do it, but I think people need to take a second to think before they tweet or before they write something. I think If you really think about, you know, most people that will tweet will just tweet in in anger or in a fit of rage or whatever if they're not happy with something, and and they're not actually thinking about the fact that there's real humans that that are watching that or that are reading it. And I think it's very easy to you know to think that we're like robots because you only hear our voices, you never you don't see us, you know. And it's the same, you know, with footballers; they probably think they'll never see it because there's thousands and thousands of other tweets about them, but, you know, some of them get through. And I think it's just important that that people are sort of educated on that in, in terms of think before you speak, I suppose, as simple as it sounds. It's, you know, what kind of impact are you wanting to have on this person? Because I think unless you've experienced it yourself, I don't think people really understand the weight that words can have on people. And I think everyone everyone is going through something. And even though someone's life may, may seem perfect on the outside or you know that's the thing that social media can do they can it can be a real filter for life that's not true and I think yeah I think a lot of people just need to think before they speak and if it's if that's the way that they want to deal with things then that's more on them than it is on anybody else.
0: Bean it's a fascinating conversation I could talk about it for a a long time but I don't want to get too deep and and, you know and, and sort of um you know, even maybe give visibility to these trolls because that's what they want behind their screen of anonymity. So I want to end on a positive note. And, uh, and my final question to you is, if you could choose any game, so we're looking forward to here, any fictional or, or possible match uh, to commentate on, which would it be?
1: Ooh, that's a tricky one, really. But I think my sort of dream would be to do a World Cup final men's or women's obviously we've got the women's world cup coming up uh, in the summer which is really exciting I think if if I had the opportunity to do it with one of my countries be that England or the Netherlands (laughs) I can sort of split myself evenly between the two that would be pretty pretty awesome to be able to do you know a world cup would probably be up there with the absolute sort of best of the best
0: England or Netherlands if they face off in the final in two and a half months time who are you picking
1: do you know what it's really it's really tricky that question because my heart is with the Netherlands because I've got Dutch passport my whole family live there it's funny really though because whenever anyone asks me this question I always say well I feel English when I'm in Holland or the Netherlands and I feel Dutch when I'm here in England and obviously I live here this is my home England but um, I think the fact that I've still got a Dutch passport, no English passport at all, um, sort of my heart stays with the Netherlands. And then, yeah, I've got to be. I've got to be different, haven't I? I've got to go with the Netherlands. And then if they go out, I'll go with England.
0: <laughs> well, we'll see what happens in a couple of months. And um, will you be working on it? Will you be involved in, in the Women's World Cup?
1: Yes, yes, I will be. So really looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, Obviously, it'll be really interesting with it being in New Zealand and Australia and, and you know, some of the, the, the numbers that are going out there to, to Australia and New Zealand will be brilliant to see. So, yeah, I can't wait, especially hoping that the momentum continues with the Lionesses from what we had at the Euros going all the way to the World Cup. I think this is going to be a really special, special tournament.
0: Brilliant. Well, Pien, best of luck with, um, with Sky Sports, best of luck with the World Cup, best of luck with thank you. everything you do. And thanks very much for your time.
1: No, thank you very much for having me.
0: And thank you, listener, for tuning in. Please make sure you subscribe to this podcast to not miss any upcoming episodes. Until next time, all the best.
1: The Football Co. Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football.